Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I was riding a high of confidence. This was a high point for me in my professional life. And in a minute, it was a nightmare. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. Regardless of whether you've actually read the Bible or not, most people know the story of Cain and Abel. Two brothers, the children of Adam and Eve. Cain, the eldest, kills his brother in a fit of jealousy. It was a parable that was hard to avoid when rookie reporter Joseph Breen covered Jonathan Madden's murder trial for the National Post. November 25, 2003. It was Toronto's first snowfall of the year. And enough had fallen that 12-year-old Jonathan was able to have a snowball fight with his friends on the way home from school. He must have come home rosy-cheeked and out of breath. It's hard to imagine what happened next. Because once inside, Jonathan Madden was brutally murdered by his older brother, Kevin. Cain and Abel, hard to miss. But that's where the parallels end. Because unlike the biblical story, this murder involved more than two brothers. Police also charged two of Kevin's friends, believing that the three teens had planned the murder together. A plot, police say, the boys laid out in a recorded phone call. A call that would define this story and Joe's career. Joe Breen would go on to cover countless other stories for the National Post. But few have stayed with him the way this one has. Because Joe didn't just cover this trial, he actually changed its outcome. So tell me about Jonathan. It's heartbreaking to learn about him in hindsight. He was on the cusp of growing up. We learned that he was starting to call himself John, which I think for many kids, that adoption of a nickname is setting your own identity out in the world. He was a sporty kid, popular in his local school. He was a big Raptors fan, so much that he was buried in a team jersey It was tragic because Jonathan was only 12 when he lost his life. But there was something kind of tragic about the whole story. And I really felt reading about it now that there was a real tragedy with his brother, too. And his brother's name was Kevin. How much older was Kevin to Jonathan? Kevin was about three, almost four years older than Jonathan. And he was into the hard teenage years. He was not really attending school. He had had serious problems with discipline, and the family was in trouble. Their father left the home in a final fight one Christmas previously, and their mother had a new partner who lived with them. He was a large man, a disciplinarian, tough. The view of the defense lawyers eventually was that he was abusive, especially to Kevin. In the context of a teenager going off the rails. 
Kevin had developed an interest in very dark subjects, necromancy, just sort of communicating with the dead, Satanism, just a kid who needed help. The failings of the mental health support systems in the city contributed to a situation in which, as Kevin grew up and got bigger and physically able to confront his stepfather, the fact that Jonathan, this sort of sporty, good-natured younger brother, was easier to deal with became more of a theme in the house. There was one episode at uh, Kevin's own birthday party where he tried to exclude his annoying little brother from some of the festivities and the stepfather beat Kevin with a plastic bat in front of his friends. This was a family on the road to trouble. So how did Jonathan's life end? It ended in a brutal, frenzied attack by his brother, with a chef's knife in the basement of their house. It followed a strange afternoon in which Kevin and two of his friends ransacked the house and waited, it seems, for people to come home. The boys, one named Tim Fairman and another who was never named, had been drinking and the house reeked of cigarettes. A TV was smashed. Kevin and Jonathan's stepdad worked in the food industry, and the boys had taken a bat to a bunch of industrial-sized jars of mustard he'd been storing in the basement. The walls were plastered yellow. And the first to come home, as normal, was Jonathan. And when he came in, he didn't know what had transpired through the afternoon that there was a crisis building. Jonathan might not have known that his house had been trashed and his brother's rage was boiling over. But he did know that his life was becoming increasingly chaotic. Jonathan had told a friend's mom that his brother Kevin wanted to kill him. So there was conflict in his mind. There was probably fear in his mind. And when he came home, there were two of his brother's friends. One that he knew quite well and one who was more of a new friend. There was conflicting evidence about exactly how the attack began. But what is established is that Kevin threw him down the basement stairs, went down the basement stairs where his little skinny brother was lying on the floor, and delivered nearly 80 blows with the blade of a green-handled chef's knife, primarily to his head and his neck. It went so far into his neck that he would have died very close to instantaneously, likely from blood loss. Almost immediately after that, Kevin and Tim dragged and moved the body into a little crawl space at the back of the basement. And that's where he was discovered by paramedics. Despite the mayhem inside the house, it wasn't the attack on Jonathan that brought the paramedics. A 911 call came in from a woman simply walking by the family house and they saw the stepfather lying on the ground and he was in such a panic that he had literally run out of his jeans. Moments earlier, Kevin and Jonathan's stepfather had come home from work only to find the boys lying in wait. The passerby saw this man having left this house in a panic saying that my son is trying to kill me. He had a goose egg bump on his head from a baseball bat. So the police respond in a flurry and they found what looked to be an empty house. 
None of the three boys were there. The house was in disarray. And the very last place they looked was the crawl space in the basement. And that's where they found Jonathan. 12-year-old Jonathan was dead. His stepfather would survive. And the family would be torn apart. But it wouldn't just be Jonathan's family whose lives would be turned upside down. Tim Fairman, who was Kevin's new buddy, was at a pretty promising point in his life. He was a chronic truant, but he was about to transfer into the school that his new girlfriend was going to. He had done some good drawings. But there was one aspect of Tim's life that would take him down a dangerous path. He was interested in vampirism and goth culture and had told girlfriends that he liked to drink blood, his own blood, their blood, in the context of sex. He had told girlfriends that he had murdered joggers in the Don Valley. This was all untrue, all bluster, and has discovered at trial an attempt to keep this new girlfriend interested. So on this day... He wants to go over to her house. He skips school and he calls her and she lies to him saying that there are contractors working at the house so he can't come over. She had broken up with him about a week previously, but he didn't accept it and she kind of strung him along. Sensing he was losing her interest, Tim called his girlfriend and told her something big was going to go down. And he says, you're not going to believe this. We're planning something big. We're going to kill Kevin's family. This call seemed to scare her enough that she decided to phone him back, this time recording it. And that is the recorded phone call that became the absolute centerpiece of this trial on which all three boys, now charged with first-degree murder, clearly express premeditation to murder. She literally asked to speak to each boy and then pulling out of them what they're going to do and why. It was a very deliberate attempt to get them to tell her what was going to happen. And it seemed to be exactly what the police and prosecutors presented it as. Open and shut evidence of planned murder. Before we go any further, I just want to ask you about Tim and the girl. And just to be clear, we're only saying the girlfriend because she was underaged and never charged. So we we are protecting her identity and it has been protected the entire time. Yes, there's a publication ban on her identity. So Tim grew up in the east end of Toronto and this girlfriend grows up where? Tell me about her and where she is. She grew up in a wealthy part of east Toronto She went to a school downtown, also quite well off. Her parents were together and both involved in her life. There were fancy vacations. They were often in Montreal and Cape Breton. Her parents were involved in her life and caring and present to her. It seemed as if the decision of whether the parents would be in the courtroom when she testified was up to her. She had sort of a strong confidence even against her parents and against the court staff who were assigned to help her. And it became clear to me that this was the confidence of a performer. 
you got to know the girl a little bit beyond just her testimony, right? This was the first murder trial that I had covered properly start to finish. And anyone who has done that knows that you get to know the participants, the people who are in the gallery. There was a crew of observers, retired folks, and they became friends. There was a large press pack. And then there were some of the witnesses. And before their testimony, you're not supposed to be in the courtroom, but after this girl testified, she started showing up and watching. She wanted to see her ex-boyfriend on the stand. And this presents a journalistic opportunity. I was younger than all the other reporters. I was closer to her age. And it just started with chit-chat. I met her in the cafeteria and I jokingly called her jackpot because Tim's lawyer had said that he had hit the jackpot with her, that she was out of his league. And she laughed and we started chatting and suddenly I was at every break in the trial having a quick chat with this star witness. I think that drove my curiosity about her to such a degree that I, um, I eventually learned more than she had been willing to reveal to the court. The prosecutors set up this call, this girl, as their smoking gun. There had been little doubt that Kevin had been the one to stab and kill his brother. But the Crown attorney said this call proved that all three boys had planned the murder together. That's not how the defense saw it. It was only as the trial progressed that we started to consider the alternative that this was big talk to impress a girl who was likely to be impressed by boasting about murder and blood and mayhem. On the stand, she said she thought all this talk of vampires and blood was silly and juvenile. But Joe noticed something that didn't quite add up. She had testified about her email address. It was biteforblood at hotmail.com. And it came up because the defense wanted to establish that she was likely to be impressed by talking about blood and vampirism and stuff, which she had denied. And her explanation for this on the witness stand was that it was the name of a band she liked. And I figured, if this is the case, there is a website for this band, or a MySpace, or whatever the hosting service would have been at the time, and I Google it. And of course, I didn't find anything about a band, but I found her. I found her blog, which was very long and very detailed, including live blogging of the trial, which she should not have been doing, and a quite a glimpse into her life. So you find that out about her, but that isn't actually the most explosive stuff you find out about her, right? There was something else. I tell you, it was the thing that I was the most interested in, and this was a mistake that I made. I found her blog, and I was suddenly looking at an account of this trial that was secret to me from a major participant. And she was blogging things to her friends saying like, oh, thank God it's finally over. Jonathan's mother and aunt came and thanked me and said I was their hero and what an amazing thing we did. Tim's lawyer was called McCaskill and she and her friends had developed a nickname for him, Mr. Big Askill. 
And she then makes a little note to her friend saying he was such a douche. I wanted to smack him so fucking hard. Fucking lawyer. That is not how a traumatized witness typically behaves. And I was enthralled by this. This was this exclusive glimpse on the trial that nobody but me seemed to know about. I was amazed. I read it all. I made a copy. I found something else, though, that didn't strike me quite as explosive as it ought to have. It was her profile on a website called vampirefreaks.com, which was just like it sounds, an online community of people who are into talking about drinking blood and posing as vampires. And she had posted racy pictures of herself. She had talked about how much she loves blood, knives, pain. And my excitement at finding her diary blinded me to the fact that the real legal issue was that this vampire freak's profile proved that she had lied about being interested in vampirism. Because she had testified before you found this that she was uninterested in blood, that she just saw it as something that Tim used to try and impress her. Yeah. She presented herself as a mature person who saw through his childish attempts to impress her with talk about blood. I'm not interested in vampirism. And so when Big Askel, the lawyer, says, well, what about your email address? Bite for blood. Sounds kind of vampiric, don't you think? She says, oh, no, 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 no. That was just a a band I liked. And... At the time, it satisfied the curiosity of everyone in the courtroom. It seemed plausible. She was in control on the stand. She was credible. What's important about that, too, is that Tim's lawyer had argued that he only said that on the phone to impress her. So by her saying, why would he think that would impress me? I'm not into that shit. It went against what he said. But what you discovered was that actually there must have been in their relationship before this happened talk of a mutual appreciation of this kind of a thing. When she was up there testifying, holding her cool against serious defense lawyers much older than her, it just made sense that she was the mature one who wasn't into the same sort of you know transparently false silliness that Tim was. So finding her Vampire Freaks profile and her links to sanguinarius.org, which is sort of a self-help website for how to drink blood, should have been more eye-popping to me, but it kind of made sense. I kind of, by that point, had my suspicions already rolling on her, and it just wasn't clear to me what the final significance would be. So I found this material about 10 days before the trial ended, and every instinct, rightly, was to publish this as soon as you can. You have exclusive details. You can't sit on this. And yet, I was learning how to properly cover a trial, and I was learning the important methods of respect for justice and fairness that a reporter has to follow in terms of 
not influencing a jury, which is the main thing. My editor wanted to publish. My colleagues wanted me to publish. But my view won the day. I just said, look, if we publish the fact that the star witness is a vampire before the jury starts deliberating and while they're still reading the newspaper, we're in contempt of court. And that's not only, you know, morally and legally wrong, it's like scary to me. So Joe and his colleagues wait until the jury gets sent away. And then they go to print, publishing a recap of the case with exclusive new details about the prosecution's star witness. And I thought that we would simply continue to wait for a verdict. In fact, what happened is that a bunch of us reporters were sitting in the hallway waiting to hear news from the jury. One of the defense lawyers came by and we asked if he had seen the paper and his face kind of dropped when he looked at it. He hadn't seen it yet. And he quickly retired to his colleagues saying that there might be some legal issues about this. And the one moment that sticks with me to this day from this trial is literally being at the urinal in the courthouse bathroom when three defense lawyers, all in black robes, barge in on me and say, where did you get this? And I'm like truly zipping up as I respond to them saying, it's on the internet. Like, where did I get it? I Googled it. That set in train a series of events that um, really devastated me. Once they told the judge about this, it wasn't clear what was going to happen. They started talking about maybe calling me to the witness stand, maybe telling the jury to stop. I called my desk and they sent me a lawyer to come hold my hand through the evening, uncertain of what was going to happen. Contempt was a live issue. I wasn't sure what they thought of me. The judge said he would read the story over the dinner break and everyone was just tingling with uncertainty as we came back from dinner. You're a rookie reporter. You've just written a story that the defense freaked out, the Crown freaked out. The judge is now going to look at it and read it. I mean, I've covered lots of trials too, and most of the time the judge doesn't even pay attention to the media, let alone like interact with something you've done, and you're a rookie reporter. Tell me a little bit about what was going on inside you. I really took to this case, and I was riding a high of confidence. This was a high point for me in my professional life, and in a minute, it was a nightmare that I was going to ruin it, that I had published something that was going to destroy this trial and prevent justice being done. So what does the judge do? So the judge is evidently angry. He called the jury back into the room and it was clear on their faces that they knew this interruption meant something bad had happened. And he looked at them and said, thank you for your service. And he told them to stop their deliberations and to go home because he had decided that the trial would end in a mistrial. And he wasn't in a position to find the girlfriend guilty of perjury then and there. And indeed she never was, but he made it clear that he felt that the Crown's 
star witness had committed perjury and there was no way to resolve that. The trial ended then and there. And how did you feel knowing that you had actually caused a mistrial? It took a while for me to understand what had happened. I felt the judge's decision viscerally. I felt, <laughs> uh, I felt as devastated as the jury looked. First thing that happened was that Jonathan's mother and Kevin's mother stood up wailing and ran out of the room. She had been robbed of justice for both her sons. It wasn't clear where things would go from there, but the trial was over. And there was no saving it, and it would have to start again. And it became clear within a few days that it would simply be redone. All three boys would again be charged with first-degree murder. First-degree murder, which means planned and deliberate murder, which, when you listen to the tape, certainly sounds like planning and deliberation. But now we are going to hear the tape in a slightly different way. On the second trial, it proceeded pretty much exactly the same way. But in the retrial, the star witness, the girlfriend, now it was clear that she was into vampirism, that she had a sexual interest in blood, just like the accused murderer said in his explanation for the phone call. And once they knew that, they were able to see this as a twisted teenage romance that had latched on to the tragedy of Kevin and Jonathan Madden's home life. And that what had really happened was exactly as the defense team for the boys said, which is that Kevin alienated and abused and mentally disturbed in his own home with a tyrant stepfather and an overwhelmed mother and a brother who was the favorite that he eventually took his rage out on his brother and two other boys had the misfortune, some of it brought on by their own juvenile stupidity to be present when it happened. And so what did the jury decide? The jury decided that Kevin Madden was guilty of the first degree murder of his brother. Tim was convicted of manslaughter because he had encouraged Kevin and handed him the knife that was used to murder Jonathan. And the jury saw him as sort of more of a participant in Kevin's murder of his brother, but not actually a murderer. And for me, why I'm proud of having blown up a murder trial is that the third boy, whose name remains protected, he was cleared of first-degree murder and found not guilty and went home with his parents. At the first trial, everybody watching it agreed that they were all going to be found guilty across the board. It would have been the wrongful murder conviction of a teenage boy. You 
You followed up with that family, right? Afterwards? I had a hard time letting go of this case. There's only so much journalism that needs to be done sometimes, and journalists often don't know where that line is. But yeah, I went sometime later to the family house, knocked on the door, wondering if they would want to talk to me, perhaps. And his mother recognized me from the courtroom. We had spent a lot of time in the courtroom together, and she gave me a hug, and that was it. And that's the right thing. He doesn't need any more attention for this and and deserve to get on with his life. How did that case and that experience impact the reporter you became over the next, well, 20 years now? Eventually, once the sort of emotional trauma of thinking I had ruined something passed, I was able to see the humor in that institutional blindness. That was a moment in time before the internet became a mature tool for society. Not only was Googling not the impulse of the reporters sitting in the courtroom who thought they were doing all they needed to do because here we are in a courtroom listening to the evidence. It also wasn't an impulse for the lawyers or the prosecutor who, you know, they were going to participate in a trial that was going to wrongfully convict an innocent boy of murder. And they were going to do it on the say-so of a teenage drama student who was testifying against her ex-boyfriend. And they didn't Google her. And if they had, they would have found that she was a liar. And it reminds me that there are probably other kinds of blind spots that now that I'm a wretched old senior reporter, that I should make an effort to be aware of and that when the next generation has their big story, that I don't play the role of the defense lawyer who got up in front of the judge and said that this information was hidden in some technical thing called the internet and I don't know how we could have found it. It's a quote. It's a disgrace. Tim Fairman served two years in a youth correctional facility. Kevin Madden was sentenced to life in prison. At a parole hearing, he described his younger self as a container of hate. Sixteen years after the murder, Kevin was granted day parole. He enrolled in a video game development program, eventually becoming a tutor. And in August 2021, he was granted full parole. next time on True Crime Byline. And it's tragic, right? You could, you could see the freight train coming and you couldn't stop it. In 1983, Joanne Wilson was murdered by her ex-husband, the charismatic and volatile politician Colin Thatcher. Saskatchewan continues to have one of the worst rates of domestic homicide. So how far removed are we really from the situation that Joanne Wilson faced? Thank you.
True Crime Byline is produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork design by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the National Post, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media. Post Media.